Hello, everyone, and welcome to How Was This Movie? My name is Dana Buckler, and thank you for taking just a little time out of your day to listen. Now, on this episode, I was lucky enough to be joined by my favorite documentary filmmaker, the one and only Billy Corbin. His films include Raw Deal, A Question of Consent, The Cocaine Cowboys Franchise, The Limelight, Square Grouper, and the ESPN 30 for 30 series, The U. His upcoming film, Dogfight, is going to be having its premiere this month. Now, that's the good news. The bad news is that we ran out of time during this interview, and we didn't get to cover everything that I had hoped. However, we are already making arrangements for Billy to come back on to finish this amazing discussion that we were having. And on one side note, I do want to say that we did this uh, conversation via Skype, and there was a couple times where the audio gets a little bit muffled, and I think that was due to... uh, bit of a shaky internet connection I had here at the studio. Of course, I found out only after the interview that the cable company was doing work at the building next door. And in fact, we did lose internet connection at one point. So I don't think it's going to take away from your overall enjoyment of this conversation. Like I said, I I was beyond thrilled that uh, Billy Corbin was uh, able to take some time out of his ridiculously busy schedule to join us here. So uh, here it is, and enjoy the conversation. Billy Corbin, welcome to How's This Movie. How's everything today? Everything is exhausting. Thank you. I can only imagine. I, I, I want to talk just a little bit about Florida, if I could, just for a moment. I moved here from Canada about 17 years ago, and I live in Ocala, Florida, which is Nothing like the Florida that I imagine everyone else around the world who hasn't been to Florida before. It's a a lovely equestrian community. It certainly is. It certainly is. I want to know if you could tell me a little bit about the Florida you grew up in. Well, you know, they say that the further in Florida, the further north you go, the further south you are. So uh, I think you're experiencing slightly different. You're having a a different experience than we had uh, down here in in, in South America. I mean, South Florida (laughs) uh, growing up. And uh, it was a very colorful place. They always say that if you are if you were a a lawyer or a journalist or a cop or a smuggler or a jeweler or a, a trauma surgeon, whatever your your job was, there was no place more exciting to be in than uh, than Miami specifically uh, because it was such a an exciting and dangerous place. America's Riviera, America's Casablanca. Um, and it was it was filled with all kinds of international intrigue. Um, there's an old saying that I often quote that uh, Los Angeles is where you go when you want to be somebody. New York is where you go when you are somebody. And Miami is where you go when you want to be somebody else. Uh, and, and that's that's my that's my Miami. Um, the one that, that, that we grew up in, it was just, uh, there was something just a little off about it, a very transient population with very little institutional memory. And so we were always kind of doomed to be treated like, like tourists. Uh, I, I often say, uh, uh, you know, Miami is where, uh, people go to take a vacation from accountability and why should our government be any different down here <laughs> as, as well? Um, so, so, so that's just the kind of place that, that this was. It was a land of opportunity in that regard. It was uh, 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 Tony Montana and Scarface uh, had a much more vivid and vulgar way of describing uh, it being this kind of gold rush uh, a town involving female genitalia uh, <laughs> from, uh, from Scarface. Uh, and um, so uh, Miami was just uh, – and, and T.D. Allman called it in Miami City of Tomorrow. He said that the, the Miami of today is the America of the future. And that's really true for much of the state of Florida, that if you want to know uh, what calamity 
our controversy or challenges will befall America in the next decade or two or three. You need only look at what's going on in Florida today, specifically South Florida, and you will find out uh, whether immigration, drug smuggling, Medicare fraud, Ponzi schemes, mortgage fraud, uh, I, I mean, sea level rise. Uh, you know, whatever, whatever it is, you look here to South Florida and you will get some glimpse into the future uh, of America. Well, let me ask you this. How aware were you growing up of everything you basically just described there? Uh, it's, it's interesting. I, I was a kid, obviously. I was born in 1978 in Fort Myers, Florida. We, My family moved to Miami, the North Miami Beach area, when I was about three years old after my brother was born. And uh, North Miami Beach, interestingly, I believe is one of the only cities in the country with the word beach in it that has no beach because it was just one of those many lies that came true in Florida development and Florida real estate. Uh, they were attempting to you know, fool World War II veterans who might have been stationed in Miami Beach who returned to middle America and then saw an ad to for $20 down and $20 a month to own their own piece of North Miami Beach and had visions of Bell Harbor and, and Miami Beach proper on the coast looking out at, at German boats off the coast, you know, off the Atlantic uh, there. And and, uh, and little did they know, North Miami Beach was just a marshy, swampy place. The only bodies of water were crappy little canals and lakes with alligators in them uh, at best. And, and uh, But then it, it, it developed into a, a real a real city and, and with single family homes. And that's where we uh, lived and grew up. And I, I would I remember there's two things I remember specifically about growing up in, in Miami then, particularly the connection to uh, uh, the nefarious goings on here is that, you know, we worked in uh, we lived in a, a really traditional kind of working class community in North Miami Beach. Uh, but everybody had a toy, uh, whether it was a portion in the driveway or, or they were building a second story to their otherwise modest single family home. Everybody had a little extra cash kicking around. And those people were not necessarily doing anything illegal. In fact, most of them weren't. But they were just living in Miami in a very exciting and lucrative time when there was a lot of cash in the community, uh, uh, most of it traced back literally to drug money. Uh, in fact, there's a medical examiner in, in our documentary, Cocaine Cowboys, who says if you – tested any 20 or $100 bill or $50 bill in Miami at that time, you would find traces of cocaine on that bill. So it was literally drug money that was filtering in Miami at the time. The woman who cuts my hair has been doing it down here for a while. And, and you know, the tradition is after you get your hair cut and you tip her out, you slip the money, you know, into her pocket, you know, while, while she's cutting somebody else's hair or whatever. And so she would go home at the end of the day in the 80s in Miami and turn her pockets inside out and find the crumpled up or rolled up bills that people would tip her with. And one day she found a little baggie with white powder inside of it. And she said she was so naive. She said to her girlfriend, she goes, well, what the hell is this? And her girlfriend says, let me tell you what that is. That's worth more than the tip that they could have given you. Uh, it was worth, worth cocaine was worth more than gold at the time. So um, that was the kind of place that what I was aware of as a kid was the money, that people had money. I didn't necessarily understand what was going on and where it came from. Uh, but I would also have memories of sitting at the kitchen table yeah, when the five o'clock news would come on on a weeknight and mom would be making dinner. While I'd be doing my homework and the local news was a colorful place, man. And, and we captured a lot of those stories in Cocaine Cowboys. A lot of that footage you see are all local no news reports about just piles of bodies on the street and shootouts in, in broad daylight at shopping malls with women and carting children and baby carriages around. And that I remember. I mean that made an impression on me growing up. And in fact, when we had gotten – we had gathered all of that footage uh, to review – uh, 
to potentially edit into Cocaine Cowboys. We had hundreds of hours of it, and, as I recall, uh, and we would watch it like all together lined up that way, you know, not like like we experienced it growing up, you know, a half hour, an hour, night after night after night, but all together this footage from years of, of sordid Miami local news stories. And I called my mother up and I said to her, I said, what the hell were you thinking raising children here at that time? We had an interesting conversation uh, about that, too. I want to touch on the fact that you did spend a little bit of time in Los Angeles growing up. And could you sort of explain that a little bit more. Yeah, well, when I was a kid, one of the exciting things that, that was happening in Miami at the time was there was a very vibrant local uh, commercial scene, television scene, film scene, uh, catalog and, and modeling scene. There was a lot of that kind of work down down here for people of all ages uh, back in the 80s. Um, it's pretty much dried up by and large uh, these days. But back then it was very exciting. Um, beyond Miami Vice, there was a lot of that kind of work uh, available. And so um, it became a real because it was so cheap in the 80s. You had these beautiful buildings and this beautiful scenery in Miami Beach. Uh, and, and the modeling business started to come in, realized if you could just kind of compose a shot where you'd frame out all of the old people over here and some of the garbage over here, or the dead body over there, you could have a beautiful, uh, beautiful fashion shoot you could do and, and put everybody up pretty inexpensively in some of the efficiencies literally on, on Ocean Drive, now one of the most exclusive and famous streets in the world on, on South Beach. And so I was not athletically inclined. My brother was a very gifted athlete. So I, I was always looking for stuff to do and after school activities. And I had a friend who uh, was doing TV commercials at the time. And I became interested in that after seeing her on television. And so um, I did a national television commercial, usually shot in Miami or at least South Florida, sometimes Orlando, uh, for just about every product sector you can imagine you name it cereal fast food orange juice uh, deli meats detergent uh, i was in a bank yeah i was in a, i was in a commercial for it and um uh that brought greater opportunity i was in a movie called parenthood directed by ron howard starring steve martin and keanu reeves and and uh, uh joaquin phoenix and a bunch of exciting and cool sure, people yeah. uh we shot that in orlando it was one of the first things shot at universal studios when they built it there uh before the theme park ever opened um there was a working studio uh where they shot some film and television stuff and one of those early projects was uh parenthood and i was in that and then from there got an opportunity to go out west to los angeles and um do some a lot of tv pilots and guest starring roles and some feature films uh in china and uh in and around los angeles and 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 it was exciting and then i and then i kind of grew out of it it was like what i did when i was uh you know as an after school hobby or a childhood hobby and and eventually uh, decided that I wanted to come back to Miami, go to go to high school here, a wonderful high school called New World School of the Arts, which was modeled after the High School for the Performing Arts in New York, which is, of course, the inspiration for fame. fame. Yeah. So it was much like that, actually, in downtown Miami. It's still there to this day, an extraordinary uh, magnet school, art school. Uh, and then um, I also was very interested in, in going behind the scenes. I think Ron Howard was probably watching him work on, on set of parenthood was an early influence, uh, for me in that regard, how, how this guy had grown up from a very successful childhood acting career. I was not nearly as successful, needless to say, but, but still that someone could, could transition that way. I mean, I mean, when you say childhood actor, it immediately evokes images of drug overdose and liquor overdoses and liquor store robberies and, you know, child molestation, all sorts of horrible things. Uh, my experience was very different. It was very positive. And uh, 
and 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 gave me an opportunity to parlay it into um, into something in, into a, a career behind behind the cameras. So let me ask you this: Now, we're, I'm sure we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the University of Miami. But was that always your first choice? Was there no question in your mind that's where you were going to go to university, Miami? Oh, oh no, I had no interest in attending. The oh, really? University of Miami. Okay. Um, it, it was it was my safety school. To be perfectly candid, I don't think I've ever told anybody that before. I'm glad we're not recording this. Um, but <laughs> I, I had gotten into uh, a school called Tufts University in uh, Medford, Massachusetts, and um, had visited there in the dead of winter. It was quite unpleasant uh, being a Miami boy or a Florida boy. And uh, I, but I registered nonetheless. Uh, it was one of the the better schools that I had gotten accepted into, and uh, that was it. That was the plan. I, I started to my mother started getting Tuftonia magazine, and for years afterwards was invited to all the cocktail and student and family alumni gatherings in, in uh, that Tufts would have in the South Florida area. Then um, I decided Alfred and I, uh, uh, you know, we had started this company with our partner David Sipkin. Uh, it was not called Rack and Tour yet. And but we had started to do projects together in middle school and high school, and we made a decision. He was going uh, was about to attend the University of Florida. So this is like August of our what would be our freshman semester, uh, a late summer of '96. And he and I made a decision that we that if we could go to University of Miami, that we would stick around and continue to build this company together and stay local. So I had actually gotten offered some wonderful scholarships from the University of Miami. Because uh, I had applied there, um, and uh, I had turned them down because I was going to Tufts. And then my mother said to me, "Well, we, well, I'll make you a deal. You can go to the University of Miami if one, you have to be able to get all that scholarship money back that you turned down. Uh, number two, you have to live on campus at least for the first year." She was determined to give me like that experience, you know, that going to college experience. And three, if I got straight A's, that was the deal. That's how seriously she took academics at the University of Miami. <laughs> at Tufts, it was okay to get a C. Sure. <laughs> at the University of Miami, I had to get straight A's. I almost did. What? I think I got two, maybe three B's, but I, I almost did. But what was the reputation of the University of Miami, 1996? Suntan U, that was its longtime reputation. I think it hadn't shed it quite yet. I still think it probably hasn't shed it quite yet. Uh, the University of Miami is guilty by geography. Uh, what's funny about it is that it's not even in Miami. It's in the city of Coral Gables. Uh, but everything that people associate with Miami invariably gets associated with a school called the University of Miami. So whether li- they like it or not, well, they do like it. If you look at the ad campaign and how they cater to people uh, on Instagram and online and even trying to attract recruits to to, to play for the sports teams, you, you'll go online now. It's all like beautiful scenic pictures of the beach in Miami and just these gorgeous shots. And so they really sell the location, obviously. But with the good comes the bad. And, and you know, you have a situation where not one, not two, but three different Ponzi schemers have had deep ties to the university in like the last 10 or 15 years. Um, Alan Stanford, uh, Nevin Shapiro, of course, another guy named Andre Pimstein, who actually ran his Ponzi scheme in part from conference rooms on campus at the University of Miami. It's kind of like one of those only in Miami things. You don't hear about that at Kansas or Nebraska or Oklahoma or UT or, you know, so it's just like, it's one of those things where, you know, you, you, you got to uh, take the good with the bad. And so Miami is just one of those places where if you, if the word Miami is associated with whatever it may be, you have to kind of take 
uh, that outlaw reputation or that renegade reputation along with it. The University of Miami is no exception. They've gone to great lengths to try to shed that that suntan you reputation, uh, that party school reputation, which a really easy way, by the way, to shed a party school reputation is to have a shitty football team uh, because you know it's in direct you know your ranking as a party school is usually in direct proportion to the enthusiasm or success of your football program you know so like uh, as Miami's football fortunes have sunk so too has their party school standing but in turn and and, and perhaps not inappropriate for an academic in- institution their other rankings uh, academically ha- have been on the rise um, so in the Ninety-six. I think that's what it was. It was. It was. It was just on the precipice of becoming slightly more competitive. Uh, their uh, admission standards, I think, were very slowly on the rise. That increased uh, uh, significantly after Donna Shalala arrived, and as more kids were trying to go to school, and 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 schools just needed to become more competitive. Um, but but the University of Miami was in ninety-six. I don't think. An institution that a lot of people took seriously academically. How do you look back at the at your college years? I know there's a lot of people. I'm 36 years old myself, and I look back at my college years uh, somewhat fondly. But your total experience at the University of Miami, how would you grade that? Well, for starters, I didn't start drinking until I was 21 years old, like literally my 21st birthday. And so, like, I had a, I had a sober college experience by choice, uh, although. Uh, as I recall, my roommate drank enough for both of us uh, freshman year. He drank enough for most of our the floor of our dormitory freshman year, <laughs> as I recall. Uh, he had a lot of fun, uh, as did I. But I took academics very seriously. I was always very academically inclined, even in high school. Uh, so I, I – and then uh, I would wind up taking a couple of leaves of absence from, from Miami to pursue some of our project, projects, including our first documentary, Raw Deal, A Question of Consent. Uh, and so – uh, I think that time away, and then I, I made a deal once again with my mother that I would return to UM to finish my triple major. That was the only way she would agree to let me to t- let me take a leave of absence. Um, so when I returned, it was even more fun, I think, because you go out in the real world and you have some real world experience, and you still take it seriously, but not as seriously as some of maybe the younger students who think that this is like the end all be all that like you're going to go out into the world. And the first thing anybody's going to ask you is for your transcript to see what kind of grades you got uh, in college. You know, to this day, I've never even been asked for a diploma uh, you know, uh, <laughs> as far as, uh, you know, my employment opportunities. But then we, 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 you know, we've always been kind of entrepreneurial and been small business owners and generated work on our own. Uh, but even so, like it, it gave me a great perspective going out into the real world, so to speak, and and generating projects on our own and then coming back to school and finishing up my degree. All in all, I look on it very fondly, particularly the political science uh, program. That, that was my primary uh, major. I think the School of Communication has grown hopefully bigger and better than it was when I was there. We had what was called a film shack in a building that has since been condemned and destroyed. <laughs> that was this this old wooden shack. I think it was one of the few buildings that might have been a part of the original University of Miami campus when they first built it. And uh, it was like, I don't know what the hell was wrong with it, but there was rumors of termites and, and of course, unsafe conditions and, and that there was no way it was up to code. And eventually, shortly after uh, I, I graduated, uh, they did knock the thing down. <laughs> um, or if they didn't knock it down, they certainly evacuated the film program from it and put it in its own new building. So at the time, there wasn't much of a film program there. Anybody uh, – and, and part of the problem was it wasn't very competitive. I, I used to joke that anybody who loved E.T. could be a film major at the University of Miami. So 
you had a lot of students who didn't take it seriously, who were really just a step away from undeclared, who decided to just put a check in the box for film major. Um, Anybody who was really serious about pursuing a film education who was at University of Miami was really wanting to get in or on the wait list at FSU. Which, as much as it pains me to say it about the Seminoles, they have one of, if not the best film schools in the country uh, to this day. And and my, they, the difference, of course, being is they had a film school. Miami has a film program or a film department. It's not its own independent, you know, well financed uh, uh, and well staffed uh, a kind of uh, uh, a school. It wasn't anyway when I was. I'm, I can only speak of my. Sure. My experience sure. at the University of Miami when I was there, I, I, I'm less familiar, obviously, with it today. But I do know they have new facilities, a new building, uh, and I'm sure it's it's grown bigger and better as, as Donna Shalala has tried to do with most of the things at the school, except for the football program. Okay, I mentioned at the beginning of the interview that I I moved to Ocala, Florida, and I moved there in 1998. Why? Okay, so no. w- when we're done, when we're done with the interview, I'll I'll, I'll spend a couple minutes and explain it to you. <laughs> so can I just tell you quickly before yeah. you talk, one of my favorite stories, my my favorite crazy Florida stories in the last five or six years or so is out of Ocala. There's a lot of crazy stories that come out of Ocala, sure. but this is not so crazy as it is just like kind of classic Florida. So. If I remember correctly, there was an ice cream shop in Ocala whose mascot was like a vanilla ice cream cone with spring or whatever. And so they hired a person who would wear the ice cream cone costume as kind of like a sign person who would dance outside in the traffic and, and try to bring customers into the ice cream shop. And it happens that the vanilla ice cream hat very strongly resembled a clans, a KKK Klansman type bedsheet hood with the white, you know, pointed hat at the, at the top. The you know the kind of the hole for like the eyes or the face or the mouth or whatever it was. And that was just one of those great Central Florida uh, stories for me. Let me tell you that I I drove by that guy every day on my way to work, <laughs> and I will tell you that he where he was on he was on the corner of Seventeenth Avenue and Pine Avenue, and Pine Avenue is known for having just a slew of seedy you know low rent motels. It's just it's not the it's not what you think of when you describe the beautiful equestrian part of uh, of Marion County. But this guy was out there for weeks before and we we would all comment about it. Like this you see this guy with this guy's dress like and you're absolutely right. Like that made national that we that made worldwide headlines. So <laughs> I, I remember it was one that. Of the safe, I think it was one of the safer and more humorous stories that emerged sure. from Florida. But it was just one of those kind of like, like funny, like forehead, uh, you know, palm slaps the forehead kind of moments that that you know would only happen in Florida. I'll try to find the article in which he was the the actual guy was interviewed, and I'll try to I'll email it to your assistant to forward to you because the to read the interview from this poor guy who was I don't even think he was getting paid minimum wage. I think he was just getting paid a couple bucks an hour. So <laughs> poor guy. <laughs> So, but back to what I was saying. Okay, so I, I was moved to Ocala in 1998. So in 1999, and I was an avid news watcher, and most of my news programming, local news, would come out of Gainesville. Some of it would come out of Orlando, but some of it would come out of Gainesville. Now, the topic of your first film, Broad Deal, A Question of Consent, I was aware of that story when it happened. And I'm wondering if you could uh, real briefly sort of explain the synopsis of your film. In case you haven't noticed, I don't do anything. Very briefly. No, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'll say, uh, Raw Deal, A Question of Consent, our first documentary, was about the alleged rape of a stripper at the Delta Chi Fraternity House at the University of Florida in Gainesville. And uh, the, it was a Big Brother, Little Brother pledge event that they had uh, 
performed with a bonfire out in the Ocala National Forest, uh, returned to the fraternity house on Frat Row uh, UF, and they had hired strippers to dance in the uh, common room of the fraternity. Afterwards, one of the strippers went home. The other stayed uh, to hang out with uh, in one of the private rooms uh, of a couple of the fraternity brothers, and she ran out. Uh, wearing nothing but a shirt that kind of went up to her navel, banging on the door of a neighboring fraternity house where she believed her grandmother was the house mom. Her grandmother was a house mom in a neighboring house. It just wasn't that particular house. And she was banging on the door claiming she had been raped and that the brothers had videotaped the entire night's events. The university police department responded to this uh, call, uh, confiscated one of the two videotapes because there were in fact two video cameras uh, filming that night. And they watched the footage from the one videotape and arrested the stripper for filing a false police report. And it became quite a scandal in Gainesville. Alachua County is kind of a small town type of, of environment, uh, despite the, the presence of this you know, flagship state university. And, and uh, uh, it became just a huge cause celeb. The videotape itself was placed into evidence in the misdemeanor case against the stripper of filing a false police report, which would make it subject to Florida's very uh, open public record laws known as Sunshine Laws, Chapter 119 here. And uh, Lisa's attorney unsuccessfully attempted to argue that the videotape should be uh, uh, suppressed under rape shield laws that would guarantee uh, the stripper uh, anonymity as the victim of an alleged sexual assault. The judge disagreed and they released the videotapes, both of them at that time. And, and it, I mean, they were distributing them from the clerk of courts in Alachua County from the state attorney's office and they could not keep up with the demand. So if you were the first person on your block to to have your request fulfilled and get the videotape, people would throw keggers. I mean, they would have parties so that friends could come over and watch the videotape footage as they called it the quote rape tape end quote and we heard heard about the story from friends of ours from Miami who had gone to school at uh, at the University of Florida and what was interesting about it is that what we heard from our friends and we grew up together very similar backgrounds sim- you know same community uh, I say that by way of saying the reaction being as different as it was, was pretty shocking because we're, you know, you, you'd say that we have similar life experience. And so you'd expect us to kind of our baggage to be comparable and, and to react to the videotape in a similar way. But these guys, I heard from one guy who was like, um, have you heard about this Delta Chi situation, in the tape? I said, yeah. He said, oh, I just saw it. And it's horrible what they do to this woman. I can't believe these fraternity guys haven't been arrested. Uh, I'm, I've been sick to my stomach since I watched it. I can barely eat or sleep. This poor woman, what they put her through and they hold her down and they won't let her go and they treat her like trash and they call her all kinds of horrible names and it's just disgusting. And then I heard from another friend a few days later, again, you know, similar, you know, we grew up together and and similar life experience. And he said, you hear about the tape? I said, yeah, I know. Have you seen it yet? He goes, I saw it. This lying, you know what, this woman should be arrested and throw and they should lock her up, throw away the key. Uh, She lied about these guys. She's having sex with all these different guys. Uh, She tried to ruin their lives, these poor guys. And and I'm like, how in the world could these, you know, these two people have watched the same videotape footage and so passionately and and certainly and with such certainty disagree about whether they witnessed a consensual sex act or a rape. And that's what really got us interested in pursuing that story. 
So what was the first step? You said, okay, we're gonna we're gonna make a movie about this. We're gonna we're gonna what angle do you attack this? Do you just do you decide to take one particular side or do you try to keep it as objective as possible? I mean, what was the plan? And then how long did you spend in Gainesville? I, I mean, you interviewed uh, numerous people. I mean, how were your experiences in Gainesville, and were you well received? Well, step one was to get the actual videotape footage, and as soon as we saw it, we could kind of, we could understand immediately the discrepancy and the nature of of the crime of rape as it is, which I, I believe has to be one of the most oft committed and least reported crimes in the history of of, of mankind. Uh, to, un, to to see that that a lot of it. As, as Alfred says, often says, you know, we expect videotape to offer some kind of objective truth. There's the guy on the surveillance footage robbing the liquor store. Go find him. You've got your, you know, you've got your perp. It's over. Uh, here you have a crime that, that rape could be a crime that, that often occurs in the mind of the victim and perpetrator where there's a failure to communicate as a result of, uh, you know, social peculiarities as a result of, uh, intoxication, you know, influence of drugs or alcohol. And so we could well, right away we understood the uh, the failure or, or we understood the discrepancy in which reasonable, educated people could watch the footage and disagree about uh, whether or not they were witnessing a crime. Um, and, and as soon as we understood that, our tact was very simple. It was to just re- try to recreate the night's events. There was never a trial. Um, so we wanted the doc to kind of a trial. It's like, let's interview the alleged victim. Let's interview, if possible, the alleged, uh, you know, the accused men. Uh, let's interview the lawyers. Then let's show some videotape footage, depending on the testimony we get, that supports either side. And our goal was to create an objective kind of uh, a court case, if you will. And then and the audience would serve as the jury. That was the that was the goal. Uh, and so our goal was to kind of get into that room. There was four people in the room that night, three fraternity men, and the stripper, and we wound up interviewing two out of the four. Uh, so I think that was pretty successful, uh, considering we could have, you know, interviewed none of them. But we moved to Gainesville and started to pursue the story and pursue the people who were involved to try to get their side of the story. Ultimately, we had the videotape footage and used it, and always intended to use the footage uncensored. Uh, in fact. You know, which is a pretty brutal and graphic experience. Um, it's very dark and disturbing. No matter what you think happened, it's still pretty. It's still a very difficult, uh, graphic and disturbing view, regardless of of, of your opinion of the case. So our our, uh, our opinion was to have no opinion, or our position was to take no position and to try to create as objective an experience as possible. And to that end. Uh, we, we had endless arguments about this. And in fact, David Sipkin, our, our third partner, while we were editing in my apartment on Final Cut Pro version 1.0, uh, Dave uh, took a piece of paper and, and wrote in Sharpie, welcome to the argument and hung it over the, uh, our computer station, our editing station, because like anybody who came into my apartment, for they would watch 30 seconds of footage over my shoulder while I was editing – and all of a sudden, they were instantly engaged in this just ferocious, bitter debate about what happened. And all of us would play devil's advocate. Me, Alfred, and Dave would play devil's advocate. And if I had put a piece of footage in that, that maybe supported one position, they would say, well, if you put that in, you better put this in. So, we, so you know, then someone would push back and then someone else would play devil's advocate. And so it wound up to be a very fair piece where I think people often say that over the course of watching the movie, they change their mind back and forth and back and forth about uh, what actually happened. You said you moved to Gainesville. Um, 
how long before you, sort of your reputation uh, or reason for being in Gainesville sort of made its way out sort of sort of to the uh, sort of the who's who of the university? I mean, was it, were you getting any kind of pushback from sort from of everybody? Everybody, okay. Yeah, I mean, we were there. We weren't there to beat around the bush. I mean, we were there to you know to to, to get in the room, so to speak. You know, to, to to get people who you know we started. We had these like kind of concentric circles that we had designed where we had a backout plan in the event that we couldn't get any of the people in the room, we still would come away with a documentary that we could, that we thought would be compelling that we could edit together. But we started like on the periphery of the community and then worked our way into people who were, you know, university affiliated, uh, other fraternity brothers in the house that night. And then of course the last circle was in that room, the four people in that room. And, um, so we started to work our way in. It wasn't a secret that what we were there really to do, I don't think. I mean, we because we were trying to – we didn't want to spend any more time in Gainesville than we absolutely had to, uh, said everybody always. Um, <laughs> but uh, except people go to school. I mean people have a great time in, uh, in Alachua County, so be it. Um, not my bag. Although you know, one thing Alachua County has on Miami-Dade is three Waffle Houses. Yeah. You do not have any Waffle Houses in Miami-Dade County. So I mean, that but- is – an edge that they have over us. But um, we we got pushback from everybody, pushback from the National Organization for Women on Campus, pushback who really had, had carried the torch for this woman's cause, pushback from some of the fraternity men, not all of them, just some of them. Uh, some of the fraternity uh, uh, brothers were, were very gracious uh, and very kind. Um, obviously, some of them had felt also very persecuted because the, 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 the fraternity at large had gotten punished for the behavior of this you know, of just of, of, of a couple of brothers in this private room. And, and, and I think there was a rift there where it's like, wow, you guys really, you know, <laughs> you know we're, 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 we're you know, sold out the whole house, so to speak. So there was a rift there uh, that, I, that existed before we ever got there. Um, so, again, some of the brothers were very gracious uh, and generous with their time uh, and access. Um, and then there was the, the uh, Lisa, uh, the exotic dancer herself. Um, who uh, wound up being very gracious. And her whole family, we interviewed her grandmother and her mother uh, as well, who were the people who first came to her aid uh, when she had had uh, uh, called the police and, and, and told them that she had been raped. Uh, so um, it, it, was a, it was a pretty mixed bag. We, we actually told nobody, including our friends, who had nothing to do with this, but who were, we were just – you know, there we'd hang out or see them while we were in town that nobody knew where we were staying. We kept that. We just kept that under the radar. Uh, we didn't think there was any need for anybody to know. Um, so we just never told anybody. We just never brought it up. And our friends would ask, oh, where are you guys staying? And we'd be like, oh, out over by, you know, on the other side of 75 out west there. So, yeah, we just we would always kind of like just throw it away and, and they never uh, press the issue. So it, it never became a big deal. Um, but uh, it, it was an interesting experience. And we'll push back, of course, from the state attorney's office. Uh, uh, Rod Smith was the state attorney at the time, uh, and uh, he later became a state senator uh, for the area. And uh, he, he was not enthusiastic at all to talk about this. Uh, in, in, in fact, was quite quite. Uh, uh, I'm looking for the for the best uh, adjective or adverb. Um, he wasn't really obstructionist because they certainly gave us access to the public records that we were entitled to. So I can't say that they were obstructionist, but he was not interested in doing an interview about this. He kept saying, oh, it's a closed case. We don't comment on closed cases. And even then, I'd been doing this long enough to know that it's open cases that, <laughs> that they don't that they don't comment on, not closed cases. And so uh, not to mention that uh, Danny Rowling, uh, the Danny Rowling case, 
they they talked – they would give an interview to, to a doorknob if, if, if sure. they were willing to talk about it while it was an open case. So they were they were disingenuous to say the least about it, the, the, the you know, uh, Rod Smith. Uh, but we wound up tracking them down. You know, we staked them out outside their, uh, their office and we did – impromptu interviews uh, out on the street <laughs> with uh with the with the uh, uh both the assistant state attorney bill servone who i believe is now is presently the state attorney and uh former state attorney rod smith who was the state attorney uh, at the time about their decision making process in the case to charge lisa with filing a false police report which i understand if i'm not mistaken was bill servone's decision at the time to actually put the woman in cuffs uh, and charge her with filing a false police report. Uh, the decision to charge the men with assignation, which was some charge that they had dusted off from like the 19th century. Can, and, can and, you define that? Uh, no, no. Actually. Okay. That's that's how archaic this thing is. It's a prostitution related charge, but not prostitution. It's just called assignation, and it's one of these old charges that were on the on the that has been on the books forever that I think the state attorney just felt like extract myself from this very explosive you know a, a, a media firestorm here maybe I can make all sides happy by I'll drop the charge of filing a false police report against Lisa but then charge her with dancing with an expired county license gotcha. now I'm not going to charge the men with with, with with rape or sexual assault but I'll charge them with assignation. Everybody will take a plea, here a charge, there a charge, everywhere a charge, charge, and I'll make everybody happy. Well, in actuality, he just kind of infuriated all sides uh, in the matter. I mean, if I don't think that a state attorney should be in the business of charging people with crimes that, that they don't really believe that they don't really believe in. They don't believe they can approve. They can prove. I don't think that should be a, a political ploy or public relations tactic to charge people with crimes. I mean. Being charged with a crime, misdemeanor or felony is a serious matter, and I think the state attorney's office should take it seriously, and in this case, they didn't. I have two questions here. One, how long did it take you to, from start to finish to essentially complete the film? And uh, let's talk about what was your first move after you had a finished film? Uh, great question. Um, we decided to make the movie, to m- put some money together, uh, go to – move to Gainesville uh, on a month-to-month basis uh, – in January of 2000 is when we decided to do it. So it took us a couple months to get our act together, uh, but we decided in January of 2000 that we were going to pursue this story. In January of 2001, we were at the Sundance Film Festival premiering the movie, which is an extraordinary turnaround for any movie, dramatic feature, particularly a documentary. Um, it, it was quite a quite an accelerated Pace. And we were the youngest filmmakers at that time in the history of Sundance, the only ones from Miami at that time. It was a bit of a whirlwind. Uh, but we uh, and when we went to Sundance to premiere the movie, we still weren't finished with it yet. I was still editing it. In fact, Sundance, as I recall, it was like writing us emails going, we really need the master. You know, print trafficking in, 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 uh, at the festival was like, we need a master. We need to te- you know, do a tech check in the venues and on and on. And, we, and Alfred would call me and be like, Bill, are you done? I'm like, I'm still editing. I'm still editing. I hadn't even gotten a parka yet. You know, I, right. I mean, I grew up skiing, but water skiing, not snow skiing. <laughs> so like, I didn't know from that kind of weather, you know, Park City, Utah in the dead of winter, I didn't have boots. I didn't have anything, but I was just still sitting there editing this movie myself at the time. And Alfred finally said one of the great lines of the like nonlinear or the beginning of the nonlinear digital era. And I still use it to this day. He, he said, he finally said to me almost, I think it was like a, less than a week from the Sundance premiere and we still hadn't shipped the master. He said to me, I'll never forget. He said, 
you don't have to finish, but you have to stop. <laughs> and that's like emblematic when you think of all the director's cuts and the, you know, the filmmakers who come sure. back to keep fiddling with their movies even 20, 30 years later. Like that to me is the ultimate line about the nonlinear, you know, avid Final Cut Pro and those days even Media 100 nonlinear uh, editing, digital editing revolution. Like so you don't have to finish, but you have to stop. So I stopped. We sent that cut of the movie. The day I came back from Sundance, I was right back at, at the Final Cut Pro system continuing to edit the movie. It would be some months after Sundance, in fact, before I had what I felt was our final cut of the movie. And uh, what type of distribution were you able to pick up with it? We weren't. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we had applied to Sundance and got in incredibly with a rough cut of the movie. We got into the Edinburgh Film Festival in Scotland, which is like the Sundance of Europe uh, and had an extraordinary experience there. Um, out of Sundance, though, we had an offer from a company called Artisan Entertainment that within a year of that deal or less uh, wound up getting bought out by by Lionsgate Entertainment. And we kind of got lost in the shuffle and our uh, Sundance fairy tale turned into a nightmare just in terms of getting mired in the kind of classic, like bad distributor type of situation with first time filmmakers. And we eventually were able to wrestle the movie free from artisan. But in the meantime, you know, a lot of time had passed. Uh, there was, there was no distributor, including artisan. Uh, there was no distributor, including artisan who was willing to distribute a movie that graphic. Sure. Because uh, as I said, we use the videotape footage and it's very sexually explicit. What's incredible about that is that Channel 4, a TV station in the UK, aired the movie with virtually no cuts, a little bit of smudging of certain, you know, uh, you know I, I was, how can I put it, a certain extreme graphic material, but otherwise completely uncensored. And they aired it on television in the UK, just to give you some perspective on the difference between, I think, the sophistication and maturity of viewers there compared to here, where you can have a, you know, anybody you want murder as many people as you want, and they'll put that on TV. And then, but the second there's nudity or sexual situations, which is a natural occurrence as opposed to the unnatural occurrence of murder, or, you know, uh, or violence, uh, they uh, they start to shy away. So we never got an opportunity again to distribute raw deals. So we just made it available on Amazon and on Vimeo uh, streaming, so people can see it. And knock wood, someday I hope it'll be on Netflix. There was a when we were kids, everybody wanted a studio deal. Now everybody wants a streaming sure. deal. Sure, the times they are a changing. Well, let's let's talk about Netflix just for a moment because I want to share this story with you. Very few films will make me when the film is over stop what I'm doing. I pick up the phone, call a friend of mine and say, do you have Netflix? No? Well, you should sign up for it right now because there's a documentary on Netflix that you absolutely have to see. And I'm telling you, it's worth the eight bucks a month. You have to sign up for Netflix. And of course, I'm talking about Cocaine Cowboys. So I'd love to hear sort of the genesis of that film. And I have to know, I think everybody listening wants to know, who is the first person you call when you decide you're going to make a film about the cocaine trade in the late 70s and early 80s of Miami? Ah, uh, Good questions. Well, first, we had done Sundance with Raw Deal. Uh, everybody wanted to know what was next. Uh, it seemed conventional wisdom, according to the press anyway, and, and much of the industry was that now that we had arrived literally and figuratively at Sundance um, – New York Post had anointed us the bells of the Sundance Ball, uh, 
with this explosive documentary that made the front page of the New York Post from this film festival out west in Park City, Utah, everybody assumed right away that we would go to New York or Los Angeles. Uh, and, and in fact, we had always intended to come back to Miami. Uh, so as obvious as it was to all of the press, we did like 60 interviews in five or six days with media from all over the world. And, and it was a very interesting experience and got asked a lot of different questions um, about the movie. And the last question was always the same. You know, are you moving to New York or L.A. now? And, and we were like, no, because just as obvious as it was to them that we would move to New York or L.A., it was just as obvious to us that we would go back home. Uh, first, we'd go back home because that's why they call it home. Uh, and, and second, you know, we, we were looking for our next project. We had worked so hard on Raw Deal that we didn't really know exactly what we were going to do next. But we knew that we wanted to come back to Miami because Florida was such an incredible untapped resource of characters and stories. So we wanted to uh, uh, explore that. And uh, as Edna Buchanan and Carl Hyacin and, and some others had done before us, but we wanted to do that for nonfiction film in particular. And uh, Alfred says like, like uh, Richard Linklater and uh, 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 Robert Rodriguez are to Austin or uh, John Waters and, and Barry Levinson are to Baltimore. Of course, you have Woody Allen, Scorsese, Spike Lee in New York. You know, you have these filmmakers, uh, uh, Kevin Smith in New Jersey, uh, uh, M. Night Shyamalan in Philly. You're like, you have like filmmakers that you, that you really do, that you associate with where they come from because they associate themselves and their work so strongly with where they come from. So we wanted to do that. We wanted to be the Miami guys. You know, we knew we wanted to brand ourselves with something other than two more schmucks peddling their wares in New York or Hollywood. Like we wanted them to know, oh, they're the Miami guys. And that was going to be our geography was going to be part of our brand and identity and our storytelling and our work. So we were looking for that story. Uh, Raw Deal was a Florida true crime story. So very much in our, in, in what we wanted our wheelhouse or our genre to be, but we wanted a Miami centric story. And Alfred in particular had always been intrigued with, uh, his experience growing up in Miami and the cocaine cowboys and particularly the drug money, which I told you, I, that was one of the few memories that I, from childhood of this salacious kind of, uh, uh, goings on, uh, when I, when I was a kid in Miami and he was always interested. He had read all the books. He had passed some of them along to me. And, uh, then I got a call from, from a family member who met John Roberts at, at the pool in his condo at Aventura and said, are you interested in this guy? And, and Alfred, I hadn't read it yet, but Alfred had read Max Mermelstein's book, the man who made it snow and immediately knew by name who John Roberts was. So we went and met with him. And eventually, uh, through him, uh, uh, met some other people, uh, including were put in touch with Mickey Monday. We knew we had kind of the smugglers represented. Uh, we had this really interesting guy who came from New York um, and became a cocaine wholesaler. We had this even more interesting guy who was a classic Miami cracker or, or North Miami redneck uh, who was incredibly uh, sophisticated and intelligent uh, entrepreneur and uh, 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 smuggler in Mickey Monday. Um, then we kind of had, had to check some other archetype boxes, so to speak. Uh, the seminal crime journalist of the time was Edna Buchanan, the Pulitzer Prize winning former crime reporter for the Herald. Uh, you had uh, you needed a, a drug lawyer or two uh, who we got in, in Louis Casuso and uh, 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 Sam uh, Burstyn. Then we wanted a um, uh, the, the cops who were really involved in Sentac 26, who were the untouchables of Miami in that era. Uh, so we went right to the head of Sentac 26 and um, 
the the guy who took over for him after he left. Uh, you have Raul Diaz and Al Singleton. So the way we looked at oh, and then of course we needed a Colombian. Sure, sure. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we happened to know that that Jorge Riviala, the hitman for Godmother Griselda Blanco, had a very unique plea bargain in Miami Dade County where he could speak, and in fact was required to in order to avoid three death penalties in capital ca- three capital cases in, in, in Miami-Dade, spoke chapter and verse about the murders that he was involved in in this county. He happened to have an impeccable memory, a fascinating kind of way about him as well and how kind of soft-spoken and handsome and chilling he was. And uh, his memory is just ridiculous. I mean, you know, the sights and sounds and smells, the caliber of weapons involved, who shot whom, how many times, the, the meals they had either before or after a hit, the vehicles they drove, the routes they took to get to these places. Uh, if not exact addresses, then he could describe the, the, the neighborhoods pretty eerily precisely, even decades later. Um, so he was a really compelling figure. And, and the way we looked at it was that, that Cooking Cowboys was a mosaic where all of these different interviews – uh, were, were tiles in the mosaic. And when you zoomed out, it was a portrait of Miami, the city of Miami, this downtown skyline. And the hypothesis was that the narco dollars that, that we had generated, uh, uh, particularly in the late 70s into the 1980s, found their way into infrastructure and essentially built the, the modern city of, of Miami. Speaking about Rivi just for a moment, this is the question that has always, I've always wanted to know. Are you sitting on the other side of the camera during his interviews? Are you in the room with him? Yeah, Alfred and I. Sometimes Alfred would be in the interview chair. Sometimes I would be with Rivi. What was it like? What was your first, your first meeting with him like? If you can talk about that. I mean, what kind of emotions were you feeling when you're meeting this person with this, well, we'll just say background? The first time we met him, it wasn't on camera. We went to visit him. And because we had put in a media, re- media request, we did not uh, visit on a traditional weekly visiting day. We, we went up during the week. And instead of being, I guess, in the more traditional visitor environment in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the prison, um, we were placed in an office and given a panic button that looked like a garage door opener that would go around our wrists and then was you know, a small box with a single button on it. Uh, and it was just like a little window. And it, on occasion, we'd see a guard peek in to check on us. <laughs> And we just sat at a desk. He was on one side of it, and it was just a desk. It was like a desk with a computer and a stapler and pens and pencils. And we were Alfred and I were on the other side, and, and Ruby was sitting there. And and again, there was always someone kind of check, you know, peeking in the window and checking on us. And we had the panic buttons, and uh, it was a really interesting experience. And everybody at the prison was very, very gracious and very accommodating. Um, we had the the benefit of, of going to prisons with very, uh, uh, you know, just 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 very accommodating wardens and and, and staff. Because uh, we we're, we're a pain in the ass. I mean, make no mistake about it. We don't, you know, that, that first meeting was just Alfred and I, but when we come with equipment and they have to check, the guards have to check everything in, I understand what a, a burden it is. And obviously their, their job is first and foremost the safety of, you know, of us, the prisoners themselves. So uh, uh, I don't think, well, I hope we weren't a distraction. I, I understand the amount of effort on their part that went into it. And they were very gracious with us. In fact, we did three separate interviews with Rivi and I believe two different institutions uh, over, over that year. And um, it was, I remember seeing him for the first time standing in the doorway when the guard brought him in. And I believe he got strip searched every time before they brought him to, to, to sit with, to visit us. And then afterwards, um, and he came in, he had this sharp haircut. Um, it reminded me of, um, Sean Connery's toupee in Hunt for an October, you know, this very 
cool, like spiked gray, you know, haircut. Um, he had bling. He had some kind of gold chain around his neck. Um, he had what I remember being brand new white tennis shoes. And he had a, a, a watch that was backwards on his wrist that he would occasionally glance at during our meeting. Kept thinking, does he have some place to be? <laughs> um, so, but he was just a cool cat. I mean, smooth as silk. And he just, you know, quiet. Um, you know, when we would interview him, for example, he would he would almost speak in a whisper, which my, I don't know if that's a product of his living in prison for, for so much of his life. It might've been a product of his self-consciousness because when he was young, he got the nickname Riverita or Rivi based on a Colombian cartoon character that had a very high pitched voice. Cause apparently he had a very high pitched voice. So we didn't talk a lot cause he was self-conscious about it. And you know, they gave him that nickname, I guess in part to make fun of him. Uh, but he later had surgery and had his voice deepened and lowered. Uh, but he was still very soft-spoken. And I remember, like, when you'd talk to him, sometimes you'd have to lean in very close, like practically, you know, put his put your ear to his mouth so you could hear him. And then you were just centimeters away from this guy who was so polite and soft-spoken and still even as he was older was still, like, just kind of like a good-looking, impressive, charming guy. Uh, I often said that he could have he, – he, he, if he had chosen a different path in life, he could have been the mayor of Miami. I believe he could still run and, and, and win an election as mayor of Miami. Uh, but that's, I think that says more about us and the electorate down here in, in Miami than it does about him. It was off-putting. And I think that's what made him so good at what he did. He was young. He was bilingual, which a lot of guys in his crew and Griselda's crew were not. He read the Miami Herald every day to keep up on uh, what was going on in the community, who was doing what. Um, he was a bit more Americanized. Uh, he came to America when he was 11 years old from Columbia to live with his father in Chicago, who worked for General Motors. So he was kind kind of assimilated in a way to America. Um, interesting story that, that we d- uh, didn't tell in the movie. He's 11 years old and he's traveling to Chicago through Miami. He comes from Columbia to Miami airport and then as a connecting flight to Chicago. But he came into the country through customs in Miami. And the way he tells it is that a uh, little 11-year-old George Ayala or Jorge, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, customs guy you know, looks at him and kind of tussles his hair and says, George, what do you want to do in America? And he says, I want to kill people. <laughs> and he says – and he kind of chuckles. He says, what do you mean? He goes, I want to be a soldier and go to Vietnam and kill people for America. And, and, the, and, the, guy, and the, the customs agent just thought that was precious and, and stamped his passport and, and let him on through to uh, to his to his flight to O'Hare, and um, that's a fascinating story that uh, that never made the movie. No kidding, no kidding. So let me ask you this: when it comes to John Roberts and Mickey Monday, uh, obviously they they serve time, and how were they able to sort of convey all this information to you? Uh, obviously they couldn't. There's no possibility of them being charged with any other crimes. I mean, they really laid out the foundation for how the smuggling operation worked. I mean, was there never any thought that they could be retroactively charged for any comments that they made during the, uh, the documentary? Oh, you know, the statute of limitations on everything except for murder. OK. Uh, <laughs> yep, so no, that's, yep. that was the only thing I wouldn't talk about. Gotcha. Um, so uh, beyond that, no, everything. Well, first of all, they had already basically confessed to it. They had already served time uh, for it, short of them ever finding that money, uh, you know, that, that John had buried sure. out in the Everglades. Uh, although the IRS also a very funny story, a great story about getting out of prison and going to a strip club. He had a uh, 
he had a, um, a safety deposit box at a bank stuffed with a million dollars in cash in a safety deposit box. Uh, and he gets out of prison. He goes right to a strip club because that's that was John's thing. And he meets this girl uh, at the club, one of the dancers. And he's trying to impress her. And he says to her, he says, have you ever seen a million dollars cash before? She says, no. He goes, I'm going to show you a million dollars cash. So they get into, I think, her car. <laughs> I don't know that he had a car. And they drive to where uh, to the bank. And there's a whole new shopping plaza where the bank used to Oh, be. no. <laughs> he goes, oh, shit. So he goes to a payphone. He calls the bank's uh, uh, 800 number. And he says, oh, this is Mr. Smith or whatever fake name he had put the, the uh, safety deposit box under. And he says, you know, I had years ago, I had a safety deposit box here at this bank, at this branch. It's gone. Oh, don't worry, Mr. Smith. All of the safety deposit boxes were safely removed and moved to our other branch just a couple miles away. When we redid the bank and blah, blah, blah. And he said, there's just one problem. You have an outstanding bill with us of X number of hundreds of dollars, whatever the amount was, plus late fees. And he said, no problem. Just tell me where to go. They give him the address. He and the stripper race over there. He says to the stripper, listen, I need a couple hundred dollars <laughs> to pay the late fees and the back bill. on the, But I'm going to pay you right back as soon as we take the safety deposit box out. I'm gonna, I've got a million dollars in cash. In there, and she says, no problem. She gives him the money, I presume, in $1 bills. And he goes into the bank. He pays. Uh, they go in. They take the safety deposit box out. Uh, he notices two things. First thing he notices is there's red tape around the, the box as they slide the drawer out. And number two, he notices it's a lot lighter than he oh, left no. it in, in weight. So they set it down. They open it up, and there's nothing inside but a letter on IRS letterhead that says, Dear Mr. Smith, if you wish to discuss the contents of this safety deposit box, please call agent so-and-so at this number. And John went and called his lawyer who said, call it back taxes and forget about it. No We're not kidding. calling the agent. There's nothing to discuss. And, and, and that's because uh, people often ask when they see the movie, what the hell happened to all the money? And that's a lot of it, you know, they lost in Panama. You know, when, yep. when America took down Noriega and, you know, uh, and, and uh, a lot of it he lost buried in the Everglades and some of it he lost uh, into the IRS. Well, how was he living when you when you filmed that documentary? You mentioned that he was met uh, at the pool of a condominium. I mean, what type of lifestyle was he living in 2000? Well, the film came out 2006. Uh, so you when you were filming it, I mean, how was he living? Honestly, I don't know what he was doing for a living or to make money. Um, he had a. A young girlfriend who later became his wife and the mother of his of his son. Um, but I I don't know what his financial means uh, were at the time. I know he was not living in any ostentatious sort of fashion. He wasn't throwing a lot of money around. I I, I don't know what his rent you know his rent payments uh, were at the time. Uh, but but the, but but the short answer is I I, I don't know. Um, and I think maybe that was part of the appeal in talking to us. And of course, we were doing a historical documentary and weren't really interested in, in, in uh, delving into the particulars of his, of his modern life, but wanted to talk to him, of course, about things that had happened some decades later. Was there ever any question between you and your partners that with some of the stories that you were telling, uh, particularly, uh, again, very, very detailed on how the smuggling operation worked and what particular Colombians were involved in, in this operation. Was there ever a discussion just sort of off the record with your partners where you said, 
maybe we better leave that part out or maybe we should leave that name out or were you just going, uh, you know, balls to the wall, everything's going in this film? Well, I wish we could have put everything in the film. The only the only stuff we cut out was really for length, which is why we did Cocaine Cowboys Reloaded later on, was to be able to get some of that, not even all of it. The first cut of the movie was four hours long. At one point, I called up Alfred. Dave and I were editing in in in, in the second bedroom of my apartment, and we had gotten it. I I I, I called Alfred up and and I said, uh, we got the first cut of the movie, our rough cut that we did, you know, to watch. It took us a long time to cut it, and he said, "Great, how long is it?" I said, four hours." He said, "Fuck you, keep cutting." And then he hung up. <laughs> and and Dave and I tried. We then spent the next couple of days, I think, you know, trying to chisel it down and. There was what we thought, you always think this, I guess, so much good stuff. We called out the back. I said, listen, I've got an idea. I said, it's not one documentary. It's two documentaries. It's a feature documentary about the drugs, sm- drug smuggling and the money. And then it's a feature documentary about the murders and the violence. I said, so it's, it's a two-parter. And he's a great idea for about the next day or two or three, maybe, we were working under that understanding. That was our understanding. This was going to be two documentaries, feature documentaries. And, and Alfred finally called back and said, listen, um, it's hard enough selling one independent documentary in this day and age, let alone two. What's funny is now it's easier to serialize stuff. You know, now you can do a four-hour miniseries on uh, myriad cable networks or Netflix. And back then there really wasn't an opportunity for that. This was going to be like a film festival piece and then selling it as an indie doc. So the market wasn't as as, as – uh, versatile as it is now, unfortunately. So we went back and we cut the best two-hour doc that we could from the material, and and as a result of that, we cut out a, a ton of stuff. That conventional wisdom is the stuff on the cutting room floor is not the best. You're, you know, you're you're putting the best stuff in the movie. That ne- wasn't necessarily the case here. We just had to cut stuff out for time, and we had to shape a story that had a beginning, a middle, and an end in it. And so there were some stories that we cut out of the movie that were arguably just as good, if not better, than anything that made the final cut, uh, which was unfortunate. So our answer, yeah, was really to put everything in it. Uh, perhaps it was naivete. Perhaps it was an experience. This was only our second uh, documentary that we had ever made. We'd never studied documentary filmmaking. We had been fans of the genre, but it never, you know, never. It was never an area of 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 academic an academic area for us. So we were kind of making it up as we went along. Uh, maybe we should have been more cautious, or maybe we should have thought about some of the things that you know the content that that had made it in. But we we were never thinking in those terms. We were thinking of how to cut the best story from the material that we acquired, be it through our original interviews with people, the archival materials that we had, had gathered. Uh, that that was the only consideration for us. So as far as distribution for Cocaine Cowboys, uh, it certainly fared better than the the first film that you made. Uh, I know I was doing – in my research, I saw that it was the highest rated film, uh, highest rated documentary in Showtime's history. Was that correct? That and Cocaine Cowboys 2, and I think it's one of the highest rated uh, shows on CNBC. Sure. Um, it, it's very popular on Netflix. We don't know how popular because they don't release those metrics, but we do. We do know they keep renewing the uh, the streaming license, so that's that's a good sign. Uh, show, yeah, Showtime has had great success with it. I think every network that's that's shown Cocaine Cowboys or Cocaine Cowboys Two uh, or Reloaded uh, has had great success uh, ratings wise. Just just uh, this is sort of just an off the cuff question. Did you watch uh, Cocaine Cowboys when it was on CNBC? And I mean, I, I imagine they had to make a lot of cuts uh, when they showed that film on CNBC. Yeah, they, they, it was even more hor- horrible what happened to Cooking Cowboys 2. 
uh, oh. which already is a, is, is, a, is a tougher sell in general, uh, but uh, even tougher when they take a 96-minute movie and make it 40 minutes. Yeah, no, uh, that's incredible. I, I remember. Yeah, it's rough. It's like Edward Scissorhands edited yeah. them uh, is kind of what it's like. Uh, it's a bummer. I, I, you know, I, I, the great thing about it is that there's a, a different demographic that watches CNBC that traditionally I think watches our documentaries. Uh, so it was exciting to have a whole new audience introduced to uh, the documentaries uh, at the same time, whenever they hit me up on Twitter to say, Oh, I just saw cooking Cowboys and CNBC. I say, thanks for watching. And I encourage you to check it out on Netflix yeah. <laughs> un- uncut and uncensored. Um, and, and uh, so I'm very grateful to CNBC for having the, the guts really to show such edgy content. But then of course, as a filmmaker, you always get that sense of, Oh, it's been butchered, you know, but that's that's a compromise you have to make in order to have your work exposed to a, a different or broader audience in that way. Can we talk about Cocaine Cowboys 2, Hustling with the Godmother, for just a moment? If we, if we must. Okay, I, I, just, I really want to know your introduction to Charles Cosby. Okay, there's kind of two ways we were introduced. First, we were introduced to Charles as a person, like his existence, and then we were introduced to Charles directly. Um, yeah, so I say first introduced to Charles, uh, uh, his existence, and then introduced to Charles, the person, uh, directly. Uh, so the first thing is that we were talking with Al Singleton, uh, Sergeant Singleton, who was with Sentac, who had chased Griselda kind of all over the country from, from Miami to, to, to California. And uh, one day he asked us, do you know who Charles Cosby is? <laughs> and we're like, no, who's Charles Cosby? And he tells us about Charles Cosby. And we were in his... Uh, conference room at Homicide in Miami-Dade, uh, formerly Metro-Dade Police Department in Doral, Florida. And I think Dave or somebody had an envel- had a, a folder and like out of the folder cascaded these photographs. And this was on a separate occasion from when Singleton told us that there's these photographs of this young black kid sucking face with Griselda Blanco. I mean, their tongues like intertwined in what looked to be like a prison yard, but she was all dressed up and like full makeup. And like, there was like various pictures of her posing in these different outfits. It looked like a JC Penny catalog shoot or something. It was, it was really peculiar, but we're like, who the hell is this guy? And then Dave Ralph and somebody turned one of the photographs over. And on the back of the photographs, there was these little handwritten love letters with like red or pink lipstick kisses. Like someone had put lipstick on and then kissed the back of the pictures and a lot of the pictures, if not all of them had these love letters on the back of them. And they were all from Griselda to this kid in, in who appeared in the pictures making out with her. And we were like, this is fascinating. And we wound up using some of the pictures without the guy in it, without Charles in it, in the movie, some of the sort of like modeling type photos of her. So we used some of those in the movie. And initially, I think we used them. Um, they were among some of the publicity stills that Magnolia, our distributor, Mark Cuban's company, had put online. And Charles called Magnolia. And he's like, where did you get these pictures? They're my pictures. I want I want the." He just wanted the pictures back. And so Alfred called him and said they're at the – introduced himself. He said they're at the police Department. He, I think he ultimately did get his letters and photographs returned to him from ev- evidence because I think they had promised that they would give them back to him when they were done with them. And he just – he never pursued it. Nobody sent them. So I believe he eventually got them back. He had many more I think in addition to those. Um, so I, I, I'm glad that we were help him help – Sure. we were a- able to help facilitate the return of his property. Um, at the same time, he and Alfred got to talking and Alfred said, well, we'd love to do a documentary about you. And for starters, why don't you come to Miami Beach – 
and we'll do like a little short that became a bonus feature on the, the DVD release of the original movie. And we put it was like this 15 minute short, but there was so much more interesting stuff that he had to tell. And so we eventually went out to, to Oakland, California and just kind of expanded on his life story, uh, Charles Cosby. And we're able to, uh, to to make that as a separate a separate documentary. How do you feel the response for that documentary was? Because I can tell you that between my friends and I, we love it. We absolutely love it. And um, what are your what are your feelings? Because I've listened to other interviews where you're, or even right before we spoke, you said, "Oh, if we have to talk about it." I, I mean, get, explain exp- I mean, expand on that a little bit. I, I always say documentaries or you know movies when people ask like filmmakers or authors, remember like what's your favorite movie that you've made or what's your you know do you have a favorite or a least favorite or whatever and and uh, I I say that it's like it's like parents with children they have their favorites but they won't tell you which ones they are. I mean, you, you you raise them the best that you can, and then you send them out into the world and hope that they don't, you know, they don't flop. Okay. Uh, I think that's the that's the extended metaphor there. Uh, but you know, with movie movie, you know, art and children that you produce. Uh, but for me, I I think it's it's in a way it's more to be self deprecating because I mean, shit. The title of the movie is Cocaine Cowboys Two Hustling with the Godmother, so we certainly deserve to be made fun of for that <laughs> or to make fun of ourselves for it. But I think it's really a matter of like, for us, it was quite literally, this is not a subjective sort of slight at the work. It is, it was a low budget direct to DVD sequel. I mean, that's what it was. So, you know, it was in kind of like classic, we were young and we needed the money mode, but but it, but it also was because we had access to what we thought was a great story. And I think it was a pretty fascinating Story. I don't know that we told it well. I always say the job of a filmmaker is to find a good story and then don't fuck it up. Don't fuck it up. Um, or find a good story and tell it well would be the PG version of that. PG-13 would be find a good story and don't screw it up. Because if you find a good story, whether it's a true story, whether it's a screen, you know, a, 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 a fictitious story, whatever it is, if it's good, then you as a filmmaker just need to kind of stay out of the way or just serve the story and it should be good. So I don't. I feel like sometimes maybe we got the choices that that, that I might have made as a filmmaker might have gotten in the way of, of the story. I, I, it has nothing to, to to say nothing about Charles or or anything about about them, it's just the, the filmmaking itself. I I, I think um, I didn't necessarily have the budget or the resources to do everything with it I wanted to do or could have done with it uh, with a little had we had a little bit more at our disposal. But we did the best we could with with, with what we have. And again, my comments about it have nothing to do with Charles or or, or any of the the, the people involved, sure. other than my my own resources and 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 choices I made as a filmmaker. That you know, you look back at your work and you're, you know, very often artists are their own, or storytellers are their own toughest critics. So I think it's very much in keeping with, with that, that I wish I could have done more. I wish I could have done it better for the audience and for Charles and for everybody. All right. Well, I appreciate that. Quit. I appreciate you liking it. Oh, we love I, it. No, I, we do. We, we got together. There's a group of six of us. We got together Saturday night. I mean, I, I told them all that I would be talking to you. And of course, uh, everybody's anxiously waiting to hear this. So I'm going to end the conversation right there on that note. Again, I want to thank Billy Corbin for taking time out of his incredibly busy schedule to join me here on How Is This Movie? And I'll keep you updated as to when we're going to record part two. Like I mentioned, he does have an incredibly busy schedule. His new film, Dogfight, which I've put the website address up on the show notes, is premiering this month. And so I can imagine that the month of March and the month of April are going to be incredibly busy time for him. So I, like I said, I'll keep you updated. And uh, again, thank you, Billy. I couldn't have asked for a better conversation. And so my name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening.